Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Jeremy Varlow, filling in for Ash Bennington, who is taking a well-deserved break. I like to think that Ash is somewhere with a button-down Hawaiian shirt and a cocktail in hand. Uh, Ash, hope you're having a lovely vacation. I'm super excited to be hosting the show today. We've got a great guest. I'm joined by Robbie Ferguson, co-founder of Ethereum Layer 2 and Web3 Gaming Protocol Immutable. Robbie, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Good to be here. Great to have you back. Just a quick note for our viewers, we're pre-recording this episode as Robbie is across the pond in Australia. It's early morning on the 6th, his time late in the afternoon on the 5th, my time. So we won't be covering any price action or top stories today, uh, as Elaine covered that earlier on the show. Uh, by the way, before we get into things, viewers, if you are not a Real Vision member yet, please go to realvision.com forward slash crypto to sign up. All the content there is completely free and will remain so. This is where you're able to watch the newest episode of Raoul Pal's Adventures in Crypto, which premieres live every Friday. Let's get into things. Like I said, we've got Robbie Ferguson here. I'm super excited to chat to you, Robbie. I'm a bit of a gamer myself, although not as much as I was when I was a kid. Uh, but yeah, I've been following Immutable Story very closely over the last couple of years, and it's been great to see the progress you guys have made. Before we get into things, Maybe you can just, for our viewers who might not be familiar with you, talk a little bit about your background, your story, how you got into the crypto space, and how Immutable came to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the stories uh, I, I think is fairly useful is, so for, for a bit of context, I've been building tech startups um, for the last decade with my brother, mainly. And we both taught ourselves initially how to code, and we were also massive gamers. So there was actually a story where, we used to play on RuneScape a bunch, and James had a RuneScape account that was uh, much better than mine. And one day I went on it, we shared an account, which is kind of against terms of service, went into the wilderness and pretty much lost all of his stuff. And uh, I was feeling so guilty that I went on and I spent all my pocket money and I bought gold so I could buy back these assets. And the next day the account got banned for real world trading. And then I think six months or 12 months later, RuneScape rolled out Jagex bonds where you could just directly buy with cash in-game gold. Uh, and so I think it was pretty clear early on that this stuff really mattered, but you had zero rights in these ecosystems and universes. Uh, the other game we really loved was League of Legends. And so actually our first uh, startup was a League of Legends wagering, wagering startup where you could bet on your own matches. 
which eventually uh, failed as it, it kind of lied shut it down for terms of service breaches. And after that, we we built a Shopify competitor, which leveraged machine learning to automatically optimize your store um, based on pricing and, and copy. Uh, that was a bunch of fun. We built some sort of quite successful hardware and, and consumer product categories out of that to kind of showcase the platform. Uh, and we got into crypto in around 2014. Uh, and I liked Bitcoin, but I wasn't obsessed with it. So when Ethereum came out, it's what we actually fell in love with. And I think it's for two reasons. One is we could actually build with it. So as developers, we could start to see the potential of what could be developed. And the basically a gambling app where you could roll a dice and probabilistically it would return a reward to you. And all of this was done transparently. And I realized, you know, this thing was a few hundred lines of code and it came out in the first six months of Ethereum existing. And the Australian government spends billions of dollars every single year heuristically testing slot machines, making sure they're paying out between 88 and 92 cents on the dollar, making sure they have sufficient funds in their bank accounts to pay out any winners all to achieve the same thing that this developer achieved in 300 lines of code. And then what Etherall did that the government could never do was decentralize and allow every single person who played with this machine to own a piece of the network. And that to me was magic. That was how we could essentially within the sort of confines of capitalism, create a system of incentives that was much, much better for prices uh, for where businesses would eventually mature to, which are collectively owned, where fees are typically lower. I think we're seeing that trend in a lot of DeFi today. It's a long way before it starts to impact Web2 companies, um, but it's something I'm quite passionate about. And so we started actually by building trading bots uh, while we were, you know, I was at university. My brother was the lead engineer at a billion dollar e-commerce store uh, down here in Australia. And after a few years of building trading bots, first on Poloniex, and, and then we switched to Dexes and some derivatives, we realized we really wanted to fundamentally build stuff that people would use because it was 2017 and there was no mainstream use of crypto outside of payments. And honestly, I would say that is still the case today. And so we had a look at a bunch of stuff and we initially started writing a white paper for the distributed autonomous act or DAB, which was effectively a lending protocol, very similar to Compound. And we hadn't solved all of the over-collateralization problems. I think you know, neither has, is Compound uh, or any lending protocols yet, but we were about to launch this. And at the same time, five ICOs went to 100, went to 200, and we got very cold feet about the space. We thought a bunch of people were going to jail. Uh, regulatory was, was kind of a nightmare. And we wanted to build something that could be built for the very long term. Uh, and that was ultimately a proper business. So. Serendipitously, that month, CryptoPunks came out. We saw these and we said, this is basically all of the value of Bitcoin, but now it is anything rather than just fungible stuff. And honestly, the first thing we thought of is just players will use this to own video game items. We were so used to that concept from growing up. Um, at that point in time, I think 80 billion US dollars was spent every year on in-game items. This is not you know, the ability to play a game. This is not the ability to buy Call of Duty. This is the skins in Call of Duty. This is uh, the coins in Candy Crush. And now that number is 130 billion. And so honestly, the way we started out was we we decided to build a proof of concept game that showed people the potential of this. And it was called Etherbots. It came out at the end of 2017. And it was essentially the first multiplayer game on any blockchain. Now, playing around today, I don't advise because all of the logic of this game is on chain. So it's extremely expensive. I think it costs you hundreds of dollars for a single match. And so we very quickly learned 
for instance, what on-chain gaming versus off-chain gaming would, would do. And, and we formed this view that basically Ethereum or blockchain should be this asset layer that empowers people with self-custody over digital assets, but everything else you'll, you'll likely have some form of decentralization spectrum. Um, and really that's, that's I think, uh, the mission we've continued on today. We, we incredibly importantly believe that just because an asset is intangible or digital, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have property rights. And we've been sold this lie based on the start of the internet, the start of e-commerce, the way that most digital asset infrastructure works today that, hey, the only way you can own this is at most a rental agreement or some sort of contract, which can basically be impugned at any point in time. Um, and you yeah. see this all the time in gaming. You know, when we started out, Counter-Strike Go, which has done 32 billion US dollars in volume of digital skins on this gray marketplace slash database run by Steam, shut down and basically you could only trade assets once per week. And overnight, op skins, a multi-hundred million dollar marketplace went belly up. You had billions of hours of player time go to waste. You had hundreds of millions of dollars of asset values lost. And we've just seen this happen again, where they've been banning accounts um with with impunity and there's really no recourse so i think this is a perfect example of why we chose this category which is it's non-speculative you don't have to believe in some future crazy off use case or adoption use case it's hey players are already spending an insane amount of money because it matters to them and they get zero property rights and zero rewards and so we really see this as a, a fairly simple transition to something with vastly more value and from there we can sort of develop much more interesting ecosystems built on top of it Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a great point, and I, I'm happy that you brought up that CS:GO um, stat there because I saw you mention it on the most recent Immutable Town Hall, and I just found it to be you know a perfect you know microcosm of what's going on in in the traditional gaming spaces that you know gamers will try and find a way to sell the assets that they've either worked very hard to acquire or spent money on acquiring and a centralized entity can just shut that down and say no you can't do this do not pass go and you know i i i think it's it just really goes to show the amount of disruption that can happen in this space and that will happen and is happening um from a mutable standpoint maybe you can kind of walk our audience through you know, a simple explanation of the immutable ecosystem. I know you guys have a ton of different products and services. You just launched the Passport. Um, you can talk a little bit about the ZK yeah. EVM thing, um, you know, the IMX token as well, and how that plays into the whole ecosystem. Um, yeah, if you can, if you can shed of course, some light yeah. on that. So I'll, I'll, I'll start with a bit of background, which is the really interesting thing for me has been seeing NFTs and in particular gaming go from this sort of undefinable and unknown concept to being uh, very well known and now fundamentally associated with art and collectibles. Right. And I, I think uh, 
the reason if you go to Gods Unchained, one of our games, you will never see the word NFT on the web page is we don't think it matters at all. For us, the important thing is that players have property rights and economic guarantees around scarcity and future trading uh, abilities. It's not, hey, this is how the technology under the hood works. And I think although art and PFP projects and collectibles are interesting and a great example of what true digital ownership can do, they are not what we're fundamentally focused on because they're ultimately speculative assets or alternative asset classes rather than being this utility-driven change around what players are already spending huge amounts of money on. And the really interesting thing is in seeing gaming become essentially the most competitive in category in crypto. So over the last three years, every single new layer two, layer one blockchain competing with Ethereum has basically had as the mantle that they want to win because it proves that they have consumers uh, and ultimately there's been an insane amount of money invested into this category, roughly 15 billion US over the last three years, which is more than for context, any other shift in distribution, mobile, social, free to play in history. And we're, we're now sort of seeing those games come live over the next six to 18 months. Uh, but the what we've really tried to build is how do we be the one-stop shop that solves all problems for gamers? And so uh, today we have uh, hundreds of games building on the platform. We would have the, the largest market share, especially now if combined with Polygon, out of pretty much any blockchain in the world. Um, we've got uh, a multi-billion dollar token, uh, which is used to drive a lot of ecosystem incentives to adopt uh, the platform. And ultimately, our goal is how do we help solve the core problems for these game developers in getting these games launched? And that means everything from their game design, their economics, their user experience, the developer experience, the scaling problems. And you've probably seen our, our recent partnership with the Polygon folks, um, which is useful to touch on as well, which is at the end of last year, you know, we had roughly uh, 40, 45 cent market share. And so did Polygon for gaming. Uh, we were onboarding a ton of games, but it was getting extremely difficult for games to A, choose where they wanted to go, and B, the competition was just getting to the point of ridiculousness. And so uh, this, this analysis from Delphi came out that, that kind of showcased pretty much it was a two-horse race. Um, and, you know, Sandeep called me and said, you know, Robbie, we really need to figure out a way to make this a much simpler choice and, and just focus on actually helping these game developers succeed. So that's what we've done. Uh, we, we basically built the immutable ZK EVM where Matic is a staking token, Immutable is the platform infrastructure built on top. And the most important thing is, A, we can unify fragmented liquidity across all of these different rollups, marketplaces, wallets, and contexts. And B, we can really unify our sort of go-to-market efforts and really just provide a sane, single default place for game developers to build. Um, and the result of that has been pretty insane. So uh, last month, June, has been our largest month by value of onboarding games in the company's history. And this is on top of three consecutive record uh, quarters of growth. And the, what we're seeing is a lot of Web2 game developers who are now shifting over rather than a lot of Web3 native game developers. And I think that's because early on in gaming as an industry, the only way for you to successfully compete was if you had enough expertise to say, here's how you build a community, here's how you do successful primary sales, et cetera. But ultimately, a lot of these developers are going to fail at building successful games. And we really want ordinary game developers to just be able to build their game with a real economy without having to worry about all these Web3 components. And that's the bridge that we're really trying to solve with, with Immutable. That's, that's awesome. And I was just about to jump into that Polygon partnership 
Um, because when I first heard about it back in March, I was like, well, wait, like, aren't these two the two biggest players in the space? Like for them to collaborate is like quite earth shattering an announcement for the web three gaming sphere. Like this is one and two coming together. And, you know, as I thought about it, it made a lot more sense because web three gaming is in such a nascent early stage that, you know, why what better than you know the two biggest players working together you know a rising tide lifting all boats as people like to say and it started to make a lot more sense when you know the details of that came out i watched uh, your interview with sandeep on bankless and it was like just kind of this aha moment it was like yeah i mean this is the natural way to onboard these people into gaming is to collaborate you know with the biggest players you know it's just a really refreshing way of doing things and i think that's very cool um, kind of following up on that question, or when it comes to like developers, it's kind of a chicken before the egg thing. It's like, you know, who do you need to onboard yeah. first? Is it the developers? Is it the huge studios? Is it the gamers themselves? Like what, what is the most important yeah. part of that? Yeah, you, you've struck on, I think, a great note, which is there are so many different products to solve for in order to unlock success here. So really over the last three years, if you're a user adopting a Web3 game, you've had to use a wallet where you have to write down your seed words or you have to use something that's ultimately custodial. And we don't want either of these. We're not a fan of custodial wallets. We think the whole point of this is to default to economic property ownership, not just your credentials being stored on someone else's server where they can operate on your behalf. And we also don't think that we'll be able to get anywhere if users have to write down uh, 24 words or remember a private key and they can have all of this stolen with all of these warnings shouted at them. And so uh, I think the first thing to, to solve for is how do you make sure the user funnel is, is smooth? And we've done a lot of work here. A lot of other people have done a lot of work here in terms of fiat on, on ramps. Um, but we just recently launched the immutable passport, which means you can sign up with email, you can OAuth, but it's completely self-custodial under the hood. So you can literally sign up in under five seconds to a wallet. And I think that's critical because if you know much about gaming, especially mobile gaming, it is all performance marketing competition. It's how cheap can you get your acquisition costs? How about it, much better can you get your retention costs? And then how well can you monetize? And we are killing 95% of user conversion at this acquisition stage when we ask them to sign up with some sort of Web3 wallet. So I think that's first really key. And the second thing is, Obviously, in order to get players, you need content. Uh, gamers won't come unless there's things to play. And so what we, we really focus on is how do we win over game developers and how do we help them succeed? I think that has a few things under it. The first is, for some reason, most alternative blockchains have gone down the path of developing proprietary uh, languages for tooling and, and developing in, in blockchain. And you know things like uh, Cadence or, or uh, Rust. And a lot of this new languaging we don't think is particularly effective because ultimately um, even using Solidity is incredibly difficult with all of the boilerplate codes and templates that are out there. And our view is it should be as simple to use as Stripe for the vast majority of game developers. And what Stripe pioneered was, you know, you could set up payments with APIs and you didn't have to have specialized technical experience. You just had to be a general developer. We think the same thing should be true for game developers. If we're requiring people to hire blockchain engineers or understand what re-entrancy bugs are, or understand really the perils of self-custody at a layer deeper than here are your choices and here are your risks. We're asking too much of them and the industry will never take off. Um, so what we've obsessed over is 
how do we abstract over almost every interaction they'll need in terms of building an economy into these APIs? And the way we do this is we have the platform of the company, which is the product itself and uh, how we service other customers. But we also build this immutable game studio where we're internally publishing and developing now five games. And the reason we do this is we want to really become experts at how do you design the economies and the game design and understand the iOS policy store. Sorry, there's a gap on that. Uh, and we're working with the iOS store firsthand. And the reason we do all of this is so we know what the actual product experience our game developers going through and what's required to create a successful game. And uh, the way we, we have essentially run this now is with immutable studios and the immutable platform where you can know everything through the game developer experience people have to touch uh, while also trying to really pioneer stuff on this game design and economy side. Um, and, and one final note on that, I think every successful shift in distribution for gaming, whether it's been mobile or free-to-play uh, or social, has really been coterminous with a successful flagship game that defined the playbook of how everyone else could succeed. And that's really where you saw the inflection point. You had Farmball come out, and then you had 100 Farmball clones, and they understood how to leverage Facebook social graph in order to generate a viral game. You had, uh, for mobile devices, obviously the early pioneers uh, like Paper Toss, but really it was it was Supercell uh, coming in uh, with a, a lot of, here's how you build you know successful mobile games. And then you had the gacha uh, and sort of um, mobile free-to-play, particularly in Asia, game design models come out. And as soon as these games have flagship successes, the way they do their game design under the hood becomes turned into playbooks and it becomes very accessible to other game developers. I think that's actually a critical piece of IP we need right now in Web3. When Axie came out, a whole bunch of people copied Axie. If that economy had been sustainable rather than unsustainable, today we would see multiple successes. And so we really just need an example of how do you generate an economy which is shared value for consumers, which has vastly superior UA, uh, and then how can people copy that? And that's exactly what we're working on over at Immutable Studios. Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. That's very cool. So we've talked about from the, the developer side of things, we touched on the actual gamer side of things about, you know, taking the complexity and just getting set up, you know, getting a wallet, you know, not wanting to go through the whole seed phrase thing and, you know, buying crypto and loading your wallet and whatnot not using the term NFTs, um, you know, but there's also been this very slow trickle of, of gamers, of popular streamers that are kind of getting into the Web3 space. Dr. Disrespect, one of the biggest streamers in the world is launching a Web3 game. So, you know, I think that there will be kind of that slow trickle of, you know, it, it definitely takes somebody to kind of pull the cart. And, you know, I think that will hopefully onboard, you know, some more gamers into the, the world of Web3 gaming. Let's talk about the, you know, the big studios, the AAA studios. We're talking, you know, the Rockstars, the Activisions, the Epic Games, who, as I understand, you know, Immutable has a few games on the Epic Games platform already. You know, I'm sure you've had conversations with these people. What's, like, take their temperature. What are they feeling about the space? Why would they want to give up, you know, huge revenues? You know, Epic Games, for example, I think takes 15%. Or is it Steam? It might be Steam. But, you know, why would they want to give that up to kind of return power to the players, so to speak? You know, what's the incentive there for them? And where are they at kind of in this journey? Are they yeah, coming on I think, board? I think Steam takes 15%. Yeah, um, it's, it's a great question. So, look, 
ultimately we see a bifurcation where there are, I think, the large studios which are happy to dive headfirst into this and really try and be the first movers and therefore have an advantage in what they see to be the next successful paradigm in how games are shared and distributed. And a lot of these studios right now are based in South Korea or Japan. And if you historically look, that makes sense. South Korea was the pioneer for free-to-play. South Korea was the pioneer for mobile. Uh, both of these, uh, by the way, were not immediately adopted by gamers when they came out. But the reality is gaming audiences over in Asia are incredibly pro-web free games. And you, you don't have this sort of tension you have to walk in, in the West as well. I think the other one is every single Web2 major AAA gaming studio in the West is absolutely currently working on some sort of Web3 understanding research or game. But it's really more a defensive strategy so that if this does threaten their status, they know exactly how to execute. And some of them, I'm sure, will just be, hey, we'll pay up. When the first you know, $10 billion Web3 gaming studio, when the next Web3 Fortnite comes out, we'll just acquire them and, and that's how we'll, we'll get the capabilities internally. Uh, and, and that's fine. I think these, these players can afford to do that. Um, but it definitely does represent this trade-off where I, I, I think it's less they don't like this system and more it's just a risk. Right, they're the beneficiaries of an incumbent model where they can sell $130 billion of fake stuff every year and never have to work out how that should be any ongoing value. They can take Call of Duty Warzone 1 and make everyone buy their skins again in Warzone 2. They can manipulate CSGO economies in order to maximize profit. And uh, the really interesting thing is that all this stuff is power law, right? So Counter-Strike Go has done $32 billion in the last three years. If you look in crypto, probably the next biggest game is, is Axie with $4 billion in volume. And we expect everything to conform to that topology. So when people look at the timelines of adoption today, they think, well, why are there hundreds of successful games? We will never see that. You will see a giant successful game, which has more volume than everything else combined. The second will then have more volume than everything else combined. And it's going to be incredibly hit-driven in, in terms of what's successful. I think the beautiful thing is you can actually run a much smaller game with this idea of a thousand true fans, and you can actually create a successful sort of sustainable economy throughout too. So I think Web3 is going to be incredibly good for indie developers. We see it being incredibly community driven. Um, but, but to sort of tie back to what you were asking, Jeremy, I think the reality is the biggest disruption for winners are going to be mid-sized studios, roughly 50 mil to a bill in enterprise value that are all in on Web3 and work out some way to disrupt major competition through this. The alluviums of the world who are, you know, extremely well-funded and made $100 million in revenue over the last 12 months post-Luna. But ultimately, they're completely committed to leveraging Web3 in everything they do and sharing a huge percentage of value. So their, I guess, unique value proposition is 100% of all proceeds are shared with ILV token holders. And so, I, I, like that, that's who I'm probably most bullish on in the next couple of years. I, I'm, I'm particularly bullish on uh, Asia, mobile, but I think we will see very large studios. I mean, you know, Maple Story is literally being put on the blockchain, which is one of uh, Korea's largest gaming publishers. So I think uh, there's there's a lot of interesting opportunities there. That's very uh, very cool, and it kind of leads into my my last question for you here before we get to viewer questions. You mentioned on Bankless, uh, this was maybe three, four months ago, uh, that 2023 was the year for Web3 gaming to go mainstream. We're now halfway through the year. Looking at that, you know, where do you think we are on the curve right now? Yeah, so if we look at when games are launching 
there's literally a bunch around the November, December mark. So uh, I, I think there's a chance. I think there's, um, you have Alluvium going live, you have Bill of Guardians, you have uh, Shardbound, um, Infinite Victory. And we, we, we track all of this stuff bottoms up pretty closely. I, I think I, I still sort of stick to those rough timelines, which is, I, I think we're going to see games with millions of players. I mean, even InView today, which is currently in their transition from this Web 2-based economy to Web 3, has a million DAO, right? So as soon as you can start to get these people using it on the hood, we'll start to see significant shifts and ultimately numbers that are dwarfing the rest of DeFi or other applications in the space right now. Um, so look, I, 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 I think we will see games with tens of millions of players in Web3 successfully define economies and very sustainable revenue propositions over this next six to 18 months. We predict that the launch timelines is over the next six to 18 months, 40% of all games funded in the space are going live. Um, and that makes sense. Games take two to four years to build. The majority of funding has gone in over the last two and a half, three years. Very cool. Thank you for that. Let's jump into viewer questions. We've got a few. I actually went fishing around. The first question is more from me. This is me as a viewer. Um, obviously, going back to partnerships, you guys partnered with GameStop last year uh, for their NFT marketplace. I'm wearing my GameStop shirt at the moment. Um, I wanted yeah. to ask kind of the nature of that partnership, what's to come for it? And another kind of question in the last couple of weeks, we've learned about GameStop Player, which I'm super excited about. Will any immutable games be on Player? Yeah. Um, so I, on the partnership, we actually have some updates uh, we should be able to share soon. Uh, they're very exciting, um, but I've, I've learned not to overhype things. Um, so we'll, we'll announce <laughs> yeah. it when we announce it. Um, and it's a very fervent look, community over there. It is, it is. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's honestly half the reason we, we, we did this partnership, right? I think they're probably the, the strongest digital community or, or army on the planet. And that is one of the most important things that we're building, right? I think with our token, where every single player earns IMX and can they play a game or trade, the vision is we can create this, you know, giant unified community of people who believe in their property rights for games, and they can actually own a piece of you know, the underlying economy that they're helping to build and, and to create. And I think that's awesome. Um, but yes, much more on uh, the partnership. Stay tuned. And of course, the like the really the core engine of that is we want to be creating the best places for gamers to trade. And we see the GameStop marketplace as a huge opportunity for this vertically integrated launchpad and, and trading marketplace. So as all of our content goes live, all of that will automatically become tradable on this marketplace. And um, that's the beauty of our global order book, which allows people to actually say, sell an item inside of a game and buy that asset on a different marketplace. And actually half of all of our trades today are done in such a way. They're sold, say, in-game and, and uh, bought on an aggregator or, or bought in some specialized experience, which we think is incredibly important because we have the opportunity to solve the liquidity problems that is played Web2, where you have Craigslist unbundling into hundreds of different businesses because ultimately there's no way to really aggregate liquidity in one single application context. In Web3, everything is modular. You can have an open layer for asset trades. Uh, you can have an open layer for um, how these trades are propagated. And what we've built is essentially a way for anyone to build a marketplace or a game and be able to tap into every other marketplace in the game on the network, which will massively increase volume and massively improve liquidity. 
Um, for awesome. all of you sort of finance uh, fans out there, think of it like a centralized order book in, in finance where you can have multiple exchanges tapping into the underlying liquidity. That's a great answer. Thank you for that. Getting to some more viewer questions. Uh, the first one I have here, which I'm particularly interested in because you know I don't play a lot of games, but I do play some sports games. How does Web3 gaming tackle a sports game, for example? Uh, look, my first answer is always FIFA, right? People spend billions of dollars on, on FIFA packs. They, they don't own any of them. They love the unboxing experience. I think there's an incredibly strong uh, sort of native genre fit there. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff coming around, say, fan-controlled football or governance and how people can actually own more of these uh, assets. I think there'll be a lot more intersection between real-world value and between the games themselves bridged by Web3. So you might be able to have uh, buy a, a player's card and based on that player's actual performance, the value of your card is going to go up and down. And so you can intersect with the real world in, in much more interesting ways. Um, I think there's also going to be a ton of stuff in virtual sports and you know people creating the, the same things we saw um, virtually human studios, which created Zed Run, who was an Australian company actually. And the whole idea was you could have these dogs that were virtual, you could bet on rather than um, flogging the actual um the, the actual animals and so look there's there's a whole bunch of stuff um we're pretty excited we've we've got multiple sports titles i think some of them already announced uh internally and there's obviously huge opportunities for how do you connect it with real world ip value uh and how do you connect it with real world events in terms of what's actually going on in those underlying sports yeah that's interesting i hadn't even really thought about that but one thing i was thinking of is like you know in nba you create a player, you create yourself, and you have like a home base, which is your house, I guess, so to speak. You could be, you could be collecting assets and putting them up on the walls, and you know it could be Los Angeles Lakers, for example. You collect enough of those assets, the Lakers send you a thing, you know, for fifty percent off a T-shirt or whatever the case may be, or tickets or a fan meet or something like that. So yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, and uh, yeah, you make very very good points there. Um, and we kind of touched on it a little bit. Will we get any sort of information about any kind of AAA partners that uh, that might be coming along to Immutable anytime soon? Or are there any current roadblocks to releasing that info? Uh, the roadblocks are mainly on the partner side where they're just trying to time the announcement. The big shift in macro has been they no longer feel the pressure to sort of announce they're doing something in the space. Um, but yes, definitely stay tuned. Uh, we will have news here at, at, at some point. Good to know. And then just going back to Epic Games, this is our last question here. Um, how does how did the NFT transactions work with Epic, which is still kind of a Web2 platform, so to speak? Does Epic Games get a piece of every sale? Do they just list the game? How does that work out exactly? Um, so as far as my understanding so far is trading is not supported natively in the Epic Store. Um, so people would be trading on other marketplaces. It's just a way to distribute the games and content. Um, obviously that's uh, one of the next stages. And I think, again, the beauty of what we can do with this global order book is have native trading. So people could be on GameStop marketplace and people could be selling on the Epic store. That, yeah, that makes good sense. Um, we're gonna wrap up here. We always finish our show with key takeaways. Robbie, if you wanna give us one, maybe two of your key takeaways about state of web3 gaming where we're at and where you think we're headed yeah to wrap us up here yeah one one thing i didn't really touch on is 
Asia is uh, incredibly bullish on Web3 gaming right now. We're seeing more developers than ever from Web2 apply from that area. You have Japan literally saying NFTs are a core area of national interest, one of the top five the next year. You have the Hong Kong government creating quite literally a Web3 gaming fund. Uh, and all of South Korea being incredibly positive to Web3 games with some of the biggest AAA studios in the world, like Nexon, uh, already deciding to build full-on projects in, in Web3. Um, so we're particularly excited about mobile-driven collectible games in that region right now. We're really going hard with that in, in terms of some of our internal projects. Um, the second thing I would say is we, we should expect to see a lot of these games that have been funded start to go live over the next six to 18 months. Um, and I, the thing I always caution is it's going to be this power law driven topology in terms of successes. There'll be one success that makes anything else much smaller. But all we really need is one major mainstream hit for the 100 million players that play it to experience a much better value offering. That's the magic moment where they're like, well, I've been screwed over by developers for the last 10 years, and now I can actually have guarantees and have property rights. And I, I think that's the moment when we start to build this community of people who demand more for their assets. Um, so that's probably what, I, what I'd leave with, um, that we are absolutely here to stay. Uh, and we're, we're really excited about the sort of the new scale that's been brought by this Polygon partnership. Yeah, I share your excitement. I appreciate your time. Ladies and gentlemen, Robbie Ferguson of Immutable, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you. It was great to chat to you today. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Awesome. Well, that's it for today, everyone. As I mentioned at the top of the show, make sure to check out our website, realvision.com forward slash crypto. Again, that's free for all your crypto content. We will be back tomorrow with Ruben Mayer from Engrave to talk about cold storage. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.